So in Acts 21, Paul and his companions have just left Miletus. They are traveling east towards Jerusalem. And you remember we've spent the last three messages in uh, that section of Acts 20 where Paul was uh, with the Ephesian elders. So now he's moving east on his way to Jerusalem and he will have to travel through many cities as you will see. So let's just listen and read along with me. Let's try to uh, pull this together in our minds as we Go, Acts 21, verse 1. Now it came to pass when we had departed from them and set sail running a straight course, we came to Kos. The following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailing on to Syria and landing in Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. Verse 4. And... Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. But we came to the end of those days and departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with their wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage to Tyre, we came to Ptolemus. Greeted by the brethren there, we stayed there one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, the one who was of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered and said, Well, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, the will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done. So what we want to do this morning is not miss the forest for the trees. And believe me, it's an easy thing to do. Because when you think about the book of Acts, okay, it, it gives us an account of the first 30 years of Christianity. What we have is this uh, inaugural uh, movement that comes up, these, these believers in Jesus, and we get to see what they do and, and how they do it. And so we get to, in many ways, answer the question, well, what does the church look like? What did the church do? What should we look like as a church? But then there are other times in the book of Acts where we would, say, well, what should we look like as followers of Christ? What should we individually be doing with our time and our energy? And how should we be uh, acting and responding? And what should we be giving ourselves to? And so those two things are continually on display as we go through the book of Acts. Then we get to a, a, a section like this, and 
We just have all of this random information. This whole chapter is void of, there, there's no commands or imperatives. It's all just narrative, historical sort of documentation of what happened. But when you look closely at these details, I mean, when you get past, you know, the fact that Luke, the gospel writer here, tells us that they passed higher on the left or that, you know, when they got to the shore, they unloaded the cargo. When you look closely, what you find is there's, there's something mysterious here, something compelling that draws us in, something that I think like anything mysterious could be a little bit uh, unnerving or could rattle us, maybe. I want you to notice, look at verse 4. The Bible says in Tyre, they found some disciples. They stayed there seven days. They told Paul, through the Spirit. You see that? Through the Spirit, capital S, not to go to Jerusalem. And then two cities later, they were in Caesarea in verse 10. The Bible says they stayed there many days. And a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his hands and feet. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, Agabus, we've met him before back in Acts 11. Remember, he's the prophet that came and, and prophesied that there was going to be a famine. And the famine happened just as he said. So we know that he's a trustworthy prophet. And then in verse 12, notice the, the personal pronouns here. Verse 12, now when we heard these things, both we and... So Luke has joined into this with the people there from that place. We pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answers and says, what are you doing breaking my heart and causing me to weep? And then when he would not be persuaded, well, they said, well, the will of the Lord be done. Now, what's going on here? Well, first of all, what happened? What, what happens if we go forward? Look at verse 27. Go down to verse 27, just so we get some context. Verse 27, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, this is Paul in, in uh, Jerusalem, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So all of this is just trumped up false charges. But nonetheless, verse 30, all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison of all Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was in an uproar, he immediately took the soldiers and centurions, ran down to them, and when they saw the commander, they came near and they took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, and they asked him who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried out one thing and some another, and so he could not ascertain the truth because of the great tumult. He commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the 
violence of the mob. For the multitude of people followed after crying out, away with him. So basically, when he gets to Jerusalem, it is every bit as bad as everyone feared it would be. So we have Paul in Acts 20 being bound by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem. Then we have people in the Spirit begging him not to go. We have prophets by the Spirit prophesying that it's going to go bad. And we have Paul going anyway. And then exactly what they said would happen, happens. So my question is, is Paul being stubborn and hard-headed here? Is this an, an indi- indication that Paul was refusing to listen to wise counsel? Did he make a mistake in going to Jerusalem? How do we know whether or not he made the right choice? There are people who believe that this text is showing that Paul made a mistake. That shouldn't surprise you. I think most people in the world would come to that conclusion. But that's not what this passage is teaching us. Now, it forces us to ask some questions. Because we can't just not understand this because this has unbelievable implications in our lives. Because the question of whether or not Paul did the right thing has to be answered because how in the world do you and I know if we do the right thing when we do it? How do we know whether what we did was right or what we did didn't work or we shouldn't have done this or we're glad we did? I mean, how do we... How do we Define success. And think about what things are more important, what things are more determinative in your life than how you define success. Because how you define success is, gonna, is going to determine what things you do repeatedly, hopefully, or maybe not hopefully. Or how you define success is going to be is going to determine how you give people advice about different things. It's going to determine so many decisions that you make are going to come down to your definition of success. So how do you how do you determine success? Well, I can tell you how most people do. Most people use two criteria for determining success. The first thing, this isn't on your handout, but you can write it. It's just extra credit, okay? The first thing that people use to define success is expectations. You see, our expectations are hugely influence how we define success. Because if things go according to what we expected them to go, then we assume that they went well, that they went according to plan, that things worked out the way they were supposed to work out. The problem is they're our expectations. It's a very dangerous thing to let your expectations determine success. But the truth of the matter is is that the overwhelming vast majority of people today do exactly that. And so whenever you say, oh, this went well or oh, this didn't go well, 
If somebody says to you, well, why do you say that? Your answer is basically tied to your expectation. Think of how scary that is. The second criteria that we use to determine success is our satisfaction, which is tied to our expectation. But have you ever noticed something that, that we could, if our expectation is exceeded, in other words, let's suppose that you were, in, were doing something, not because you wanted to, but because you felt like you had to, you needed to, whatever the reason was, and you were expecting it to be really bad. And when you did it, it turned out to be not bad as you thought, or maybe it turned out to be good. So it exceeded your expectation. So you would conclude that, you know what, that worked out good. I thought it was going to be bad, and then it worked out good. To which I would say, worked out good according to what? Your expectation. Now, if it, if it goes lower than our expectation, it's bad. So our satisfaction plays a huge role in this. So we have expectation, we have satisfaction, and these two things come together to determine how we define success. And I, I would just simply plead with you this morning that this may be a moment that you really, really need to focus and pay attention on what I'm about to say. Because you do not want to live your life. Everything that the scripture has warned us about in the last four weeks. Will come true in your life if you define success by those two things. And I feel such a weight this morning. For all the faces looking back at me. That define success exactly that way. So get your listening guide out. And let's work through this. When it comes to success. The first thing you need to understand about success is. You have to defend it. Defending success. You have to defend it. Now, I'm sure you've never thought about this before, but you do. You have to defend actual success. So I feel like we should talk about this before we define what actual success is. So defending success. Now, defend it against what? what? Well, first of all, you have to defend it against discouragement. Discouragement. There's a reason why real, true success is so elusive today and why the enemy is so successful at allowing it to slip through our fingers. We have to defend it against discouragement. We live in a world where every day we're bombarded by a million messages that are encouraging us how to live a safe, comfortable, easy life. To watch out for yourself first. To make sure you're going to be okay. To have a contingency plan in place to ease 
the pain if something bad were to happen? Well, whenever you endeavor anything hard for God, so I don't mean that it's hard for God, I mean it's hard and you're doing it for God, you'll be opposed by people close to you. Always. So I started thinking over the last couple of weeks, I started thinking, is there a time in my life where I endeavored to do something hard for God and the, there wasn't a voice trying to discourage me that was close to me? I don't mean a voice from outside. I mean close to me, in my inner circle. I couldn't think of one instance, not one. I was thinking about, <clears throat> as God was calling me to preach, and it, I was terrified. And certainly wanting to have conversations with people and, and needed to be encouraged and just couldn't imagine what this would look like and, and you know, that could this actually be what God wanted to do and and I remember my closest friend in this church said to me, Tony, I just don't think you're ministry material. Appreciate that. It's his exact words. Obviously, he's not here anymore, but. I thought about the people close to me that thought, yeah, you know, Tony, with all that you have going on in your life, you really think adopting two kids is a wise thing to do? According to who? Last time I checked, the Bible said, Father the fatherless. Is that not what the Bible says? It's what it says. I didn't do it because it was easy. I didn't do it because it's not scary. I did it because the Bible tells me to do it. Because the Bible defines success. You know what success is? Success is faithfulness. It's not the outcome. Matthew chapter 16. Look at these verses. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. See, this whole thing with Paul is not the first go-round. Verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter pulls the Lord Jesus aside because Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. It's not going to go good. It wasn't Agabus tying stuff around his feet and binding himself up. It's just a same story, different moment. It's not going to go good. You sh and then Peter's, oh, well, far be it from you, Lord, that this shall happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not mindful of the things of God. Jesus said, you know what your problem is, Peter? You think like a human. You think like a lost man. That's not how saved people think. That's not spiritual wisdom. That's worldly logic. 
So the disciples, for seven days entire, they told Paul, for seven days, this back and forth arguing with Paul about through the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. And then Paul finally gets away from that, and here we go again. Luke and everyone, all of his companions. In other words, the the picture is Paul is alone in this. There's nobody else that's saying, Paul, you need to obey what God's told you to do. Nobody. Every single person is saying, don't do it. Don't go. It's not safe. It's not a good idea. You need to stop. You need to back up. You need to think this through. Think of all the logical arguments they had. Paul, what, what, if you go and you die, then it's over. But if you stay here, think of all the people you can reach for the glory of God. Think of all the churches you can plant. I mean, aren't you alive uh, more profitable than you dead? Think of all the ways in the world that we can use worldly wisdom to convince ourselves that Paul is making a huge mistake. The last thing he should do is go to Jerusalem. Let me tell you something. You're going to have to defend success. You're going to have to defend it. You see, whenever you want to do what makes sense, you don't have to defend that. Nobody's trying to discourage you from that because it makes sense. you got to defend success against denial. It's all around us. Discouragement comes, then denial comes. People around us, people in the church... Live in denial. Think in worldly ways. Watch way too much television. Spend way too much time on Facebook. And have been way, 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 way too trained and instructed by the voices of this world. You remember that moment in John chapter 12? You remember when uh, Jesus is, uh, is teaching and in verse 27 he, he says, And now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven, the Bible says, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. In other words, confirming the truth that Jesus just spoke. You're right. You've got this right. The voice comes from heaven. And then notice what happens. The people standing there who heard it, they heard the voice from heaven say that, and they go, oh, that must have been thunder. Did you hear the thunder? Isn't that strange? There's not a cloud in the sky, and yet there's thunder. And then other people said, oh, that must have been an angel. Even when someone said, hey, that wasn't thunder, they said, oh, well, then it must have been an angel. 
Whatever we can do to deny the supernatural, whatever we can do to try to bring things we don't understand into an arena where they make sense to us, it must be thunder. See, here's the thing. We don't have a hearing problem. We have a filter problem. You see, everyone standing around Jesus that day heard. The problem that we have today is not hearing. It's, it's a filter problem. We hear just like they heard. But then we filter it through the wrong filter and we come to a conclusion that, oh, well, it must be something that makes sense to us. Well, here's what I say. I say that these are my personal convictions. If you're not doing hard things in your life, then I don't want to hear your advice for my life. If you're not doing hard things in your life, I don't want to hear what you have to say about my life. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say about the hard things that I'm doing for the Lord when you're not doing hard things. I, but I will listen to people who are doing hard things. In other words, what you need to do is you need to make sure that the voices you're listening to know what success is. Because if they don't know what success is, then how are they going to give you advice? Think about the people and the voices that you listen to that encourage you to do the things that you do or don't do and how absurd that is. There's no wonder we get in the situations we're in. I mean, it only makes sense. I don't get financial advice from the broke guy. I don't buy weight loss pills from the chubby fellow. So I'm not going to take advice on hard things from someone who doesn't do hard things. How does that not make sense? And yet every, every young person that God sets their heart ablaze, man, years, years of youth ministry, should pray for Brian every day. God just lights these young people's hearts on fire for him. And they, they begin to dream God-sized dreams and think about these things that God is calling them to and As soon as they mention 
giving their life to the mission field or anything dangerous. It's the parents or the grandparents that rush in with the fire extinguisher and put out the flame. Why would you do that? No, you should go to college and get a good job. That's what you should do. You shouldn't be a missionary. Why, why would you want you don't, to? You don't want to be a pastor. I mean, whew, look at Brother Tony. You can be so much more effective doing other things. Ask anyone that works with teenagers and they'll tell you. One day they, they come in and the flame's gone and you know exactly what happened. They went home and started telling people around them what they were dreaming about doing and they freaked. How do you define success? You got to defend success against discouragement, against denial, and against duplicity. Duplicity. You familiar with duplicity? It's a wonderful word. It's not just fun to say, it's wonderful. It's biblical. It means deceitfulness in speech or conduct. It's being double-minded. It's, it's a duality. And so what happens is, is that when you try to embrace real success in your life, you're going to have to overcome all of the duplicity that you've been accustomed to. If you try to actually live out what the Bible says, trust me, it's going to be war. It's going to be war in your Sunday school class. It's going to be war in your D group. It's going to be war. War. Because duplicity has infiltrated the thinking of the people around us. And they have forgotten that God is active in this world. Forgotten the power that God has. And began to buy into, again, worldly, sensible, logical things that completely deny the power and majesty of God. You know what I'm talking about? Do you know that more Muslims come to faith per missionary than any other world religion? You know that? For every missionary that we send into the Muslim world, more Muslims follow Jesus than any other world religion. And yet, the church 
sits idle, shaking in fear because those who profess faith in Allah are growing in such great numbers and overtaking the world. Well, is the problem that there's too many Muslims? Or is the problem that there's too few missionaries? I mean, what's the problem? The problem is, is that we've convinced ourselves that Muslims won't follow Jesus. Because all of their outward antics have scared us into believing that. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. The fact of the matter is, is that we send one missionary into Muslim nations for every 100,000 Christians. But if your child came home and said, Mom, Dad, I think God's calling me to take the gospel into the 1040 window, what are you going to say? How do you define success? First thing you're going to do is write me a big nasty letter. I mean, I got a stack of them. Yours will just be another one in the pile. Is the Muslim world resistant to the gospel? Is it, is it resistant to Christianity? Or is our Christians resistant to Muslims? Who's resistant to who? Last year as a nation, we spent more money on Halloween costumes for our pets than we did to reach Muslims in the world. See, here we are in our duplicity. All of our blessings, all of our privileges, all of those things that are so hard to give up. Let me ask you a question. If something is hindering you from doing the hard things that God has called you to do, is it a blessing? Or a curse. Write you a little list while you got a pen and paper out. Write you a list of all the things stopping you. Is it a blessing or is it a curse? See, we use our privilege to save ourselves and not others. We stop and stay and hang on for us. And so it's no wonder why there's so much confusion about this chapter of Acts. There's no wonder why there's all these people 
writing books and preaching sermons about Paul's big mistake? Well, of course. No one wants to stand up here and say what I'm saying. I don't want to say it. That's not what I want to say, is it? It's not about that. So why was Paul going to Jerusalem in the first place? Why are we even having this conversation? Well, what's the big deal about going to Jerusalem? Well, the main reason for him going to Jerusalem is because he's carrying a sack of money. Money that was given by the churches of Macedonia. The dirt, poor, impoverished, broke churches in Macedonia took up an offering for Paul to bring to the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem is struggling big time. They're under huge persecution. There's all this disunity going on. And, and Paul knew that when they received this offering, when they realized that the churches of Macedonia had given this money, that it would, it would bring unity to the church. And so here's my point. Paul, he's not going to Jerusalem because for him... He's going to Jerusalem for others to encourage them. It's the same Paul that wrote in Philippians 2. Words that if we're not careful, they just roll off our tongue like there's some, like we're reading a poem or something. No. He lived this out. And he says, let nothing be done in selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. So you're going to have to defend success. Because if you try to embrace real success, it's going to be some... Some real obstacles. Do you have the courage to do that? What about defining success? Maybe we should have started there. No. Uh, if we'd have started here, then I would have never. I'd have lost you. See, here's the thing. We, we just have to admit. Let's just be real with ourselves. We don't like hard things. I don't like hard things. You don't like hard things. We want to avoid hard things as much as possible. That's the way we live. That makes sense to us. And I'm not suggesting that you change any of those things. I don't think it would be uh, godly for you to desire things to be hard. I think you'd be a little mental. But here's what happens. What happens is, is in our avoidance of difficulty, in our strivings to make things smooth... We begin to skew the way we understand and know the God of the Bible into 
something that it's not. And so we may say something like, you know, God's commands aren't easy. It's not easy being a Christian. I'm only able to do it by the grace of God. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But why don't we just say it for what it is? I mean, instead of saying, it's not easy being a Christian. Why don't we just say, you know what? It's super hard being a Christian. It's hard. In fact, it's impossible if God doesn't help you. Without God, it's impossible. You can't do it. And with His help, it's hard. Like, let's just be honest. We have His help, and yet repenting is hard. Forgiving is hard. Consistently praying is hard. Reading your Bible every day is hard. It's hard. So let's don't act like it's, you know, a little challenging. Serving effectively in the kingdom of God is hard. Going to church is hard. Plugging into community is hard. Trying to put other people ahead of yourself is hard. It's hard. You know that. But we don't say that because we're afraid that we're going to sound unspiritual. Because we develop a culture in the church where everyone acts like it's not hard. Well, it is hard. It's hard. It's not unspiritual to say it's hard. And it's hard for a reason. Here's what the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Oh, well, that makes sense. See, is that not hard? I mean, what are we doing here? Who says that? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So in God's economy, hard things are the fertilizer that make us grow. That's what James is saying. He's saying it's hard and you need to count it all joy because it's supposed to be hard. It was meant to be hard. God made it hard for a reason. And that's to grow us. And if it's easy, you don't grow. But guess what? Man, there's a lot of places you can go. And not grow. And everybody's just perfectly content to be there. We hear voices around us saying, Oh, we don't need to change. God loves us just the way we are. Hmm. See? Well, that's kind of true. 
Yeah, he loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. But what does that mean? That means he loves you enough to put fertilizer on you to grow you. That's what it means. So basically, if you read your Bible, you're going to get stuck. I mean, really read it. I don't mean, you know, scan across the words and check a box. And I mean, if you actually read your Bible and you actually pay attention to what it says, I don't, I don't know how this could elude anybody. See, if we're saved, we have to make a choice between hard things or harder things. That's your choice if you're saved. That's your only two choices. The only two in the Bible are harder, harder. I mean, let's have an evangelism conference. Harder, harder. Come on in. We'll get some... Postcards printed up for Easter. We'll mail them out to all the people around. Harder, harder. Which one you want? Come see. And we might get people here just out of curiosity. What kind of maniac place is this? Remember in Luke 21 where Jesus says to his apostles, he says, you're going to be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they're going to put some of you to death. What? Yeah. Or in Proverbs 13, where the Bible says that the way of the unfaithful is hard. You see, I just want you to think about this for a second. If the way of the unfaithful is hard, does that mean that the way of the faithful is easy? No. It means the way of the unfaithful is harder. That's what it means. It's harder. It's harder. Because it won't have any purpose. It won't have any meaning. You see, it doesn't say that it might be hard. It doesn't say that sometimes it's hard. It says it is hard. It is hard. So when you read your Bible in the back of your mind, you need to understand that the way of the unfaithful is hard. So when you're reading things that sound really hard to you, then instead of saying, wow, that's hard, why don't you say, wow, that's hard, but being unfaithful to that is harder. It's harder. If we avoid hard things, you know what happens? Harder things come into our lives. We're so many people, good gracious, they, they read their Bibles, and I use the term read lightly, trust me. Skim their Bibles. This is what they're like. They're like the person driving down the road that hears a rattle under their hood. And they think, hmm, something's rattling. I'll just ignore it and it'll go away. Now, it eventually goes away. Because it fell off the car. 
And you have a way bigger problem than what you had in the first place. You see, it seems hard to stop and open the hood or go to a mechanic or take the time to figure out what's rattling. It's hard at the time to do that. But if you don't do that now, it's going to be harder later. But pretending that it's not rattling is never going to work. Never going to work. Just leads to a bigger problem. So how can we leave here this morning and really, really, really understand what the Bible teaches us about success? I want this to be the last, the last thing you hear this morning is this last conversation. I want you to think about the lies that have crept into our consciousness and crept into Christianity, crept into the church. Things like, um, if you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. We, we, should, we should just admire that for a minute. Man, does that, doesn't that just look good? It feels good. That is the biggest lie in the world. It's a lie. All my life I had a dream. Since I was a little boy. All I ever wanted to be was a racehorse jockey. I worked so hard. Everybody told me if I worked hard, I could be anything I wanted to be. They lied. That's a lie. What about this one? Oh, you can be the best in the world. Why don't you just follow your passion? Why don't you just do whatever it is you like to do and you can be the best in the world at it? Is that true? Can everybody be the best in the world at something? Is the reason that somebody's the best in the world is because they... Hmm, because they worked the hardest and wanted it the most? Is that, is that, is that how that works? Come on now. Or are the people that are the best in the world at something? Here's a good one from yesterday. Is the best wide receiver in the NFL the hardest worker? Huh, guys? Is he? Is that what it is? Or is he the biggest jerk? The sorriest human? Come on. I mean, that's, that's, that, those lies are, are in every classroom, every secular understanding of everything. I mean, our whole country just embraces all. It's a lie. That is a lie. 
So, what is Scripture? How would the Bible teach us about success? How would the Bible expose lies like that that are so prevalent in our lives? Well, there's a parable in Matthew 25 called the parable of the talents that you're familiar with because I reference it all the time. And it's a parable that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of heaven. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes away on a long journey. But before he goes away, he calls in his servants. And he gives each of his three servants a sum of money called a talent. And the first servant he calls in, he gives five talents. The second servant he calls in, he gives two talents. And the last servant he calls in, he gives one talent. And the Bible says that he gave each one according to his own ability. And then upon his return, he goes away for a long time. He comes back. And when he gets back, he calls his servants in to give account. Okay? They're servants. They were entrusted something to be stewards of while the master was away. And so when he comes back, he calls them in. Let's see what happened. What did you do with the money that I gave you in the first one? And the second one, both doubled the money that they were given. And the master is well pleased with them. And they receive his praise. But the third servant comes in who was given one talent. And he, he safeguarded his talent. He buried it and made sure nothing happened to it, but he failed to increase it. He just maintained what he had. And he was condemned by the master for his inactivity in the harshest of ways. Now, he didn't lose anything. He just didn't gain anything. Now, now what does this parable teach us about? Success. Number one, playing it safe is failure in God's kingdom. Failure in God's kingdom. The church isn't a place where people come and receive salvation like a bus ticket to heaven. And then they all sit around in the pews waiting on the bus to show up. That's not what it is. That might be what people want to make it look like, but that's not what it is. We're called to work. We're called to do hard things. We're called to use our talents for the glory of God. We're called to multiply what we've been given. See, success in the Bible is never equated with playing it safe. Never, ever, ever. In fact, it's equated with what we would say is taking risk. Although there is no risk for God because inherent and in, there cannot be risk unless there's Ignorance, unless there's something unknown. Since God knows everything, it's impossible for him to take a risk. 
And if we belong to God, and if we believe God is sovereign, then technically, can we risk? Didn't Jesus say to us, why would you fear a person who could just kill the body? Why would you be afraid of someone who could kill you? You should only fear the one who could kill the body and the soul. Isn't that what Jesus said? The thing that scares us more than anything else, Jesus is like, really? Why? There's no risk in me. I already know everything. I've already handled everything. I've already taken care of it. Playing it safe is failure. Number two, God always gives us everything we need to do what he's called us to do. You see, we're not sitting around waiting on the the next components of whatever it is. We, We already have it. You see, each of the servants was given more than enough to meet the master's expectations. The servant who received five talents, he had everything necessary to make five talents. The one who got one had everything he would have needed to do one. Or the one that got two had everything he needed to produce two. He had everything he needed. You see, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we're his workmanship. We're God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That means good works according to who? Not me and you, to God. God's opinion of success. We're created by God for what he deems successful, that God prepared those things beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not risking because God's already prepared them for us. We're just walking in what he's already prepared for us. The problem is we're sitting around waiting on the bus to come to get us to take us to heaven. Now you can tell yourself all you want to that God didn't give you any talents, but you're calling God a liar. Because he says that every single child of his, every resident of heaven, every possessor of the Holy Spirit is gifted and commanded by God to use those gifts for the edification and building up of his kingdom. It's not suggested It's commanded. Everybody's been given talent. If you haven't been given a talent, you're lost. You can't be saved and not have. It's impossible. The third thing this parable teaches us about success is that... Ready? Let the hate mail flow. We're not all created equal. Now you're going to have to turn your TVs off to get this. Because this is the, the, the subtle message that I hear in every newscast. That I see on every sitcom, every commercial What a ridiculous lie 
Notice in the parable, God does the unthinkable. The master has the audacity to give three servants, all equal. There's not, they're not different levels of servants. They're all equal servants, different amounts of money. <gasps> Gasp. All of you need to get a pen and paper, write out your doctrine of fairness that you try to raise your kids by, take it outside, and light it on fire. It is 100% unbiblical and absurd. Why would you want to teach your kids fairness? Life ain't fair. There's nothing about fair. The Bible's the most unfair thing you're ever going to read. Salvation is the most unfair thing you could ever imagine. So let's drop it with the fairness thing. You know what the master understood? He knew the servants. And he knew they weren't all equal. Because why? Because he knew them. Know anybody? Are we all equal? In any way? Created in the image of God. Equal. Loved by God. Equal. But. Created equal. To function equally. Gifted equally. Talented equally. Come on. And who would want to live in a world like that? It doesn't make any sense. You read the Bible and you realize diversity is woven into the fabric of mankind from the very beginning. He didn't make Adam and Adam. He made Adam and Eve. They're different. I don't care what they call themselves. They're different. And from there, difference, diversity, it's okay. Fourthly, what we learn about success. We will be held accountable. We'll be held accountable. We're responsible for what we do with what God's given us. And one day, we're going to give account for that. And in that moment, nobody's going to say, well, I didn't know that. Well, well, I didn't realize that. I didn't understand that. I didn't get that. I didn't. Mm -mm. No. When you get home this afternoon, just get your Bible out and read Matthew 25 and and read the end of the parable. As he gets to towards the end, Jesus says this in verse 29. For everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now notice something. 
See that last line? For even what he has will be taken away. So you, so for him that does not have doesn't mean he doesn't have anything. Because if you don't have anything, then nothing can't be taken away from you. So you have something, but what you don't have is what you multiplied what you had into. You understand? You see, for everybody who stands before Christ and all they have is what they started out with, all you have to show for is what God gave you. It's going to be taken away. How do you define success? When things when when you feel prompted by the Spirit of God to go and Ask somebody for forgiveness. Or reconcile some wrong. And you go to that person. And they reject you or mock you. Or, or worse things happen to you because you went to them. Is that a failure? How many of us define that as failure? Because we expected that if we did what God says to do, it's going to work perfectly according to our expectation, according to what we want to happen. Is it a failure? So isn't it true... That really what's holding us back more than anything else is our definition of success. Isn't that what's holding us back? What would it look like? What what happens if we don't use what the master's given us? What happens if we opt out of hard things? What happens if we play it safe? If we just coast along? Well, Everyone around you is going to love you. The world's going to love you. You're going to probably enjoy lots of wonderful things in this world according to your definition of success. But I can promise you it won't be worth it. I can promise you on the authority of Scripture, you're going to regret it. You see, 
The thing about what Jesus says in Matthew 25 is that the unfaithful steward didn't waste the master's money. You understand that? He wasted an opportunity. What we forego is the opportunity. And because he wasted the opportunity, the master judged him and condemned him as wicked and lazy. So what would it look like for you to say yes? Just to slide God over a blank check and just say you fill it in, Lord. What would that look like? What would it look like in witness? If you just submitted yourself under the authority of the word to let your light shine in such a way that people see that and glorify your Father in heaven. Like I'm talking about intentionally, consistently, in reality. That you... Put aside other things. You put aside your fear. You put aside the inconvenience. You put aside your busy schedule. You put aside all these other things. And you actually said, I'm going to embrace the command. I'm going to steward the witness that God's given me an opportunity to steward. Like, I don't know anything, but I know I'm saved. And I know Jesus is real. And I know that he came to seek and to save the lost. And that's all I know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my light shine in such a way. I don't mean that, God, I hope people come along and see it. No, I'm going to go out shining it. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go walk through neighborhoods, knocking on doors, inviting people to come to church and to trust Jesus. Not because the church organized it or the pastor went with me. I'm just going to do it because God commanded me to. It's hard, and I don't want to. And there's going to be a lot of people around you that say, why are you doing that? You don't need to do that. They're going to think you're Jehovah Witnesses. Nobody's going to listen to you. What are you doing? There's going to, because you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to defend success. But what's holding you back? What's so compelling? We're so excited about the football game. The game. It's a game. For the love of God, it's a game. Do you realize how absurd that is? It's a game. We have a 24-hour-a-day network devoted to games. That's all they talk about, games, all day long. And yet you think the Cartoon Network is stupid. I beg to differ.
What if you said yes to God in service? I mean, let's just be real. How many of you sitting in here this morning? What are you doing? How are you serving the kingdom of God here in this place in a hard, difficult way? Right now. Today. How? Like what job doesn't get done if you don't come to church? Hmm? I don't mean easy. I mean hard. Why don't you follow my wife around? Why don't you follow her around? I'm the pastor. You know how many times my wife gets to come to church on Sunday night? You know the last time my wife got to come to church on Wednesday night? Oh, she's here. Half the time I look over there, she's not listening to me preach because she's not in here. You know why? Because, and she's not complaining. Because doing hard things is a way of life for her. Because for 25 years, she served constantly. In the hardest places in this fellowship. The Bible says the greatest among you will be a servant. Jesus said if anyone serves me. Then he has to follow me. For where I am my servant will be also. But if anyone serves me. Him my father will honor. You need a job. You don't need a job because I got jobs that need to get done. You need a job because God commanded you to have a job. Get a mop. Get a broom. Vacuum cleaner. Something. What would it look like? What about in generosity? What if you did something hard in generosity? Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. Where's your heart? What if we defined success the way the Bible defines success? And we said, you know what I do, God? I... I uh, I'm going to give myself to doing what your word calls me to do. And I know it's going to be hard. And I know people are going to try to discourage me. And I know there's going to be duplicity all around me. I mean, I realize it's going to be hard. But here's what I also realize. That I am successful. The minute I obey what you said. It doesn't matter what my opinion of the outcome is. 
Success is, doesn't have anything to do with the outcome. If you give every Sunday afternoon for the rest of your life to knocking on doors and telling people about Jesus and no one ever gets saved, What will it be like when you stand before the master? You know what you won't remember is all the naysayers. All the people trying to talk you out of it. All the people trying to get you to play it safe. Yeah. There's a strong temptation to hold your breath, isn't there? But to breathe in this oxygen of this word is hard. There's things that God's calling you to do that are outside your comfort zone. There's things that God's calling you to do that go beyond what you, your expectation of what's required. There's things that God's calling you to do that you can't do alone. I mean, you're going to have to recruit other people to do it with you. There's things that God's calling you to do that have no immediate gratification or reward. And you know what I know about those things? They're all going to challenge the cultural norms around you. So yeah, I had a whole page of hilarious jokes I was going to tell you this morning. I just couldn't bring myself to get to them. I felt like oxygen would be more appropriate. Let's stand and bow our heads.